Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game? Meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today. Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I almost fell out when you said Season 9 because it doesn't feel like it's been that long. Oh, it's here, Lauren. Nothing you can do about it. (laughs) (laughs) The trains are going. (laughs) I'm excited, as always, to to talk to y'all. To this season, we actually have a different topic. Every season, we do a new theme, and we're discussing generative learning for leadership educators. Um, This is an approach to leadership development and education that focuses on cultivating generative thinking and behaviors in leaders. I actually saw a couple of workshops at ILA that already have this in the title, so I'm excited in a few weeks to go to ILA um, to hear more about this conversation. When we talk about generative thinking, for us, it's the ability to create new possibilities, think systemically, and generate innovative solutions to complex problems. It involves shifting from a reactive or problem-solving mindset to a proactive and creative mindset. Yeah, I love that idea of just being being proactive. It's, you know, like Stephen Covey, the whole idea of, you know, beginning with the end in mind, right? And so um, as we think about generative learning and leadership education, we're looking specifically at how leadership educators aim to develop leaders who can navigate uncertainty, how we can inspire collaboration and create or facilitate positive change in their organizations and communities. As leadership educators, we're thinking about this through the lens of experiential learning, reflection, the development of skills such as systems thinking, adaptive leadership, dealing with adaptive challenges, and emotional intelligence. We know our audience is familiar with those concepts. So our hopes to talk to guests about how they're thinking about this and how they're doing uh, post-pandemic as we're kind of squeezing our way out of this. So uh, this season, we're inviting leadership educators and some faculty in other disciplines who may have won awards for teaching or what have you, as well as scholars to talk about artificial intelligence, ethics, social phenomena, uh, disruptions and adaptive challenges, as well as some other emerging trends and issues affecting leaders in these spaces. Uh, We're broadly asking The question, how are we processing what's happening and affecting our classrooms and our programs and campuses as we're trying to develop curriculum, teach and evaluate leadership learning and through all that, continue to build community. 
it feels like we're playing a big game of leadership dodgeball with all of the things that are coming <laughs> at us, right? ChatGPT and DEI and all of these things that we're trying to make decisions around in real time in that moment and not screw up the world, right? Um, we actually brought, though, the person who can help us out with this. Um, today, we have a podcast favorite, and Dan and I say this very genuinely. Um, we have Dr. Ralph Gelati, Assistant Vice President for Organizational Leadership in the Office of the Executive Vice President for Academic Affairs at Rutgers University. In addition to coaching academic leaders on campus and writing every book and article on improving leadership in college, Ralph also holds teaching appointments in various colleges. We're super jealous, as the students would say, that future academics and practitioners get to hang out with him on a regular basis, but we're excited to have him today where he's going to talk about teaching and leading and coming out of the pandemic and what leadership educators can know to navigate changing the space. Ralph, welcome. Hi, to guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for the nice introduction, Lauren and Dan, and thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited and welcome back to the show for your, your third time on. Um, so, you know, as we take a, a trip down memory lane and for our listeners, if they want to take a listen back to some of those episodes uh, way back in September of 2020. <laughs> you chatted with us about what I'll never forget that, Dan. Uh, it's well, well, it's so funny. So um, I think you're thinking about, and this is this is hysterical because we so we talked before we had you were on the podcast. We were still doing video interviews for the Pause for Pedagogy series for the ILA newsletter. What I think it's called inner what's it, intersections. I always forget what they call interface and intersections. And so we were like. I think it was like March-ish, February at the, at the earliest, uh, we were like, oh, maybe this like pandemic thing, or what do we call a it? Weird, a weird like, virus. That's, right, there's like, yeah, there's this weird yeah. virus on like the West Coast, <laughs> and we're like, oh, I don't know, you know, something might happen, and then, oh my gosh, if we had had that foresight, I wow. mean, <laughs> and then uh, I think we did reminisce a little bit about that when we had you on um, that, I guess that would have been like late, late summer of 2020. Yeah. And so you were talking specifically about how academic leaders could navigate crises and your book was fresh, hot off the press, right? It was. Yeah. At that time. And the title of that book again is? That was Crisis Leadership in Higher Education, Theory yeah. and Practice. Yeah. And then we had you on about a year and a half later, you and uh, Marcy Levy-Shankman, you all had co-edited one of the New Directions for Student Leadership texts or books, chapters, journals. I know uh, uh, Susan and Kathy and V, they're like, it's a journal now. Okay, it's a journal now. Um, but that one was <laughs> on using inventories and assessments to enhance leadership development, which Correct. is a great interview. So we're super excited. So folks, if you want to check out some of the past episodes where we've had Ralph on, we absolutely invite you to do that. And so before we get into some of the, the questions that we kind of alluded to in the introduction, what has changed for you since, you know, December, 2021? How did you get into, well, it sounds like you're spending a little bit more time doing some coaching, leading higher education leaders. You certainly have some new appointments at the university. What's what's going on in, in Ralph Gelati's life? <laughs> well, at first, it's so good to be with the two of you and all of the listeners. I, I was so looking forward to the time together today to chat. Um, and the, the, the setup of of the podcast season is fascinating because I love the idea of leadership dodgeball because it does feel like we are in the midst of and making sense of just profound change everywhere we turn. And Dan, that's happening at Rutgers as well, um, which explains sort of some of the shift in my appointment. I, um, I'm now working centrally in our um, Central University Academic Affairs office, and we are working with academic leaders throughout the university 
So Rutgers is one university, but we have several campuses. So I have the pleasure of working across our academic health space and then in New Brunswick, Camden and Newark as well. Um, and each has their own distinctive culture and identity and set of priorities. So it's really a great sandbox to think about leadership and the different ways in which leaders um, engage in the important work of academic leadership. I um, I have three kids who are growing older by the day and um, we moved houses this summer and it has been just a whirlwind of, of activity on the personal front and the professional front, but all good things. We should start like a parents and leadership education podcast and just tell the stories of how those intersect. Like I, I had, I was teaching my son to write and I needed him to practice. And so he randomly saw Kuzin Posner. And so in practicing his writing, he wrote Kuzin Posner. And I was so proud, even though he never cracked the book or <laughs> that. You know, I'm like, maybe this is foresight, but, but thank you. Well, it's, it's so funny you say that because my kids often say that when they, when their teachers ask, what does your daddy do? They say he, um, he likes crisis leadership. So I'm just wondering like how their teachers are making sense of what, what profession is this guy actually engaged in? That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, so, well, like related to that, you do like crisis leadership because you've been kind of our go-to when we're, when we started having these conversations, you were one of the first people we thought of because you kind of live in this space about how, so even though these crises are happening, we as academic leaders still need to manage that space so that we're able to teach our students. And so can you talk a little bit about not so much the beginning of the pandemic, but maybe mm -hmm. more recently, where you think we are in higher education and how are we kind of moving past the severe restrictions and into, I hate to say like normalizing it into our lives, but kind of like I look at COVID now, it's like COVID, RSV, flu, get these virus shots or get these vaccines, like kind of how are we normalizing it? Um, such a great question. And I think probably first, you know, for some folks who are who are dealing with COVID or any of those other viruses, it's um it's it's an issue, right? And it's and it affects each of us personally. I think as you think systemically and how we as institutions and organizations are now pivoting to this sort of post-crisis environment, there's lots to unpack there. Um, first, what comes to mind is is if we think about sort of crises during the pre-crisis, acute crisis and post-crisis phase, um, we probably are in that post-crisis moment in time for many of us as it relates to a pandemic. And I know sometimes when we use the words po post-crisis, we use quotation marks or bracket it because there's some uncertainty. Again, because crisis is socially constructed. So for some of us, we're post-crisis. For some of our institutions, we're looking ahead. For others, we're still dealing with the financial challenges and many other issues that were presented by COVID and other sets of crises over the last few years. That actually, for me, Lauren, um, resonated in terms of my research that I've been working on. And I just submitted the manuscript to Rutgers Press. It was just accepted. And it'll be a while until the book comes out, but it's on the subject of post-crisis leadership in higher education. And I explore these ideas because it's these. this is really the conversation that we're having across my institution. And I know uh, with leadership educators across the country, for so many of us, what's at stake here? What does it mean to engage in leadership in the aftermath of disruption? What does it mean when post-crisis leadership is socially constructed? So for some of us, we're ready to look ahead. And for others, we're dealing with the trauma of the moment. 
And what does it mean to engage in the important work of reinvention? And this is why I love the generative leadership theme that you all have identified for this, this uh, year and this season, because um, it requires new mindsets, new ways of thinking, new ways of approaching um, the work that we do. So I love that you shared that and, and I'll take advantage of you while you're here. Since my institution, we've been relatively unstable. We've had massive presidential changes. As we're recording this last two weeks ago, our president died on stage. It was horrible. Right, it, it, awful is, is not even the word. She was generally loved and respected by everybody. And it was shocking. And her death was very public in that it happened while they were honoring another amazing black leader who passed away this year. Like uh, we've, we've had so much depth in our leadership. Uh, I don't think I've ever been anywhere where two senior leaders have passed away while working in the same year. And so you talk about kind of how some people are post-crisis and some people are still a lot of this stems from when the pandemic started and how our leadership was managed and even um, the president role of like navigating and being the go-between between so many stakeholders. We're a large mm -hmm. institution, same as Rutgers, and you have, you know, you could probably list 50 stakeholder groups separately easily and, and the president's got to manage this. So it's just, it's interesting you talk about like where people are post-crisis, acute crisis, even coming out of the pandemic, it, it doesn't seem like we're all over the place, but in reality, higher education is probably all over the place, right? I think that's exactly right. And I'm sorry about that that um, that experience at your institution, Lauren. It, it's tragic for, for so many. Thank you. Yeah, I'm wondering, piggybacking off of what you were saying before about like how individuals within organizations experience crisis. So it had me just kind of like spiraling in my in my head around. So, you know, how can we talk, how can we teach leadership, talk about leadership without talking about change? And I think about some of the classic models like Potters and you have got like Kelly and Connors. Sure, sure. And so like, excuse my ignorance, but there must be like stages of crisis. Like I think about like uninformed optimism, informed pessimism, like, mm. you know, creating a sense of like, what and are there like classic theories of crisis over time or have you developed your own i don't want to out your your new publication coming out but yeah. what does that look like as a function of i mean folks are like oh we're not really in a crisis oh no no we are we are <laughs> yes yeah that's fascinating dan and so, so much of the writing on the subject of crisis and crisis management often gets at it from a public relations perspective right so what's the reputational risk during each of these stages of crisis. Um, but as we're all experiencing, and I know at our free institutions and certainly for listeners at our, our own institutions, um, there's more than reputation that's at stake here, right? There's, um, there, there's sort of the sense of, of um, core work that we're engaged in as an institution. There's the need to sort of reinvent some of what we're doing in response to the pressures of the moment. And I know, Dan, I, I follow a lot of what you're doing with your program at, at Southern Maine um, and, and really just trying to think creatively about how to deliver a high quality education and to scale it and to make it accessible to, to lots of different learners across the country and across the globe. And um, I think given the financial pressures, the reputational pressures, the growing distrust in our institutions and the value that we provide. Um, and that's within higher education. And then we're nestled within these broader environment environments that, that are just as complicated. Um, so it, it's, is it change fatigue, Dan? 
is it post-crisis leadership and, and thinking about like, how do we reinvent in environments that in some ways need to be nimble, need to be adaptive, need to be agile? There's just a whole host of questions that each of us as leaders are wrestling with and our institutions writ large are wrestling with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, as someone who has just delved into this, right. And you're writing about this, you're leading this area and kind of being the thought leader, not only at your institution for sure. And and certainly more, more widely now, as you've developed a reputation in, in this area and written extensively about it. I mean, what, what have you seen work for faculty and student affairs yeah. administrators? So the the pillars that I try to write about in the text and that have served as a guide, and really this is shaped by my experience in conversations with, with leaders in higher education at Rutgers and elsewhere, it seems like there's um, there's a lot of great literature on trauma-informed leadership. And so I'm really, I was, I was inspired by some of the writing and thinking on trauma-informed leadership and looking at the ways in which in the aftermath of crisis, leaders are called to encourage learning, inspire growth stimulate meaning-making, pursue reinvention, and advance renewal. So those are the five pillars that I focus on in the writing. And as I think about um, my conversations with leaders on the ground, it seems like many are are, um, working through the same sets of questions. How can I be responsive and present to my teams? How can I pursue change either because it's being imposed on us from above or because I see or we see the need to reinvent or do things differently? And then what role does healing play in that when each of us are impacted by crises in different ways? So what does that demand of leaders and academic leaders, but certainly not limited to higher education? I think it it really calls for so much of what us in the leadership education sector have been writing about and thinking about for a while, right? For leaders to be goal-centered, to be intentional, to be people-centered, um, to understand what our principles are. And we have to double down on that now in this post-crisis period. Love that you shared all of that because, so I teach leadership and public relations courses in the public relations program. And so when you said that, you know, uh, public relations, we've been looking at it through this crisis lens, you're right. Because I feel like like the universities usually address their image instead of getting into, so now what do we tell our faculty? So they'll say, you, like, I, I always hear, you know, govern, kind of make the decisions for your class accordingly. But then there's no follow-up with, okay, so how do I make those decisions? How do I know what policies I'm not violating? Mm. How do I not kind of proverbially get dragged into the dean's office? And I feel like I go back to during the pandemic, I was teaching, communicating organizational change. And I felt like, so I was pulling out my textbook and I'm like, okay, so this model says I should do this and these things. And I feel like I was, I was, fortunate. But then I also knew my colleagues were struggling and I'm like, oh, well, you got to do this. We got to do this. And and they're just like, kind of like, how did you know all of this? And I was like, well, I like I'm teaching this class. It's a literature. And and I love my students because they hold you accountable. If I mess this up, they're like, no, don't take that class with Professor Bullock. We're (laughs) in a pandemic. She had no clue. And I wouldn't get grace that this complex problem never happened because all semester I'm teaching about, you're going to be faced with complex problems. Here's how you go about that. And here's what's important. Um, I I feel like, and I'm sure the book will get to this. There's a lot of ambiguity and trying to be caring as well as still be pushing forward, like being productive. There's a lot of ambiguity. And I feel like 
leaders feel like that's the right thing when in reality we need examples and we need metaphors and we need clarity on on what policies apply so i almost i i hope that that's somewhere in that space if not book number two i'm sure (laughs) right um Totally. Lauren, that's so well said. And and I find that in, in the midst of that tension and that debate and and and, and that experience, um, the, the need to understand what our institutions stand for and to use that as a guide for decision making. Yes. Right. It, it, because then that's something it's it's the ground upon which we all stand. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's at least agree on this in environments that are, you know, subject to a lot of debate and, and dialogue around uh, around different um uh, th- that that's important right we need to have those different perspectives but what's this shared foundation upon which we stand and then how can we lean upon that as we look ahead to a yeah. to a future yeah well in my mind I-, I thought about like the hersey and blanchard model yeah. hersey and blanchard and and of course i can't remember the other one i just taught in calm leadership last week but the two of them i'm like all right so we're like committed, but we don't know what we're doing in terms of the pandemic. Mm. So you should be supportive or you should be coaching us and, but you're being supportive because you think we know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like there's this very basic mismatch. And, and, and my thought process is, and I lovingly say this to my students, most people over the age of 35 have not taken a leadership class. So they're going off their experience and they're not being exposed to some of these models that could help them out. And so when I hear these problems, like I start thinking, okay, well, in chapter two of my calm textbook, it says this. <laughs> And I know it's very like formulaic or systemic. Yeah. So the reason we have these models is so yeah. we can practice, right? Totally, Lauren. And for leadership educators to be mindful of, and this is where the, the tension is when we apply frameworks like that, is when you're leading complex organizations, you have lots of different stakeholder groups and follower groups. So some might be classified in one section of that quadrant and others, I'm thinking legislators, might be in a whole different bucket. And when you're trying to respond to the needs of all of these different stakeholder groups, there's tension there. So I think turning to the models and frameworks, I love it. And then figuring out what works best for your institution, given our unique context. My old department chair used to have a philosophy, like the students matter first. And so in those spaces, she would kind of assess where they were and what they needed and then tasking everybody else to to meet those needs. I would argue students and faculty at its core, like assessing those two groups first and then kind of coming for everybody else. But I'm also biased because I've been both at my institution. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, Lauren. Yeah. No, you've got so much like just bubbling up in my, as I'm thinking about this, I mean, one of the things you said that really struck me, Ralph, um, around, I mean, uh, particularly during crisis, how quickly do we lose sight of what's the mission? What's the vision? What's our common purpose of our organization? Can we continue to make decisions through that lens or through that filter when we're, when we're faced with a crisis situation, right? And like, how, how difficult does, does that, become particularly, you know, as Lauren mentioned, like, hey, folks over 35, most of them haven't taken a, a leadership class in, and so many, although maybe a little bit lesser so now that there have been terminal degree programs and things like mm-hmm. higher ed leadership, higher ed administration, but mm-hmm. that's still, that, that's still the minority. I mean, folks are still mostly, and I'm not saying that administ- faculty turned administrators are all poor, right? That's, that's not, that's not accurate at all. Mm -hmm. There are many, many strong administrators that came from the faculty ranks. However, many folks that did come from the faculty ranks 
have never had any uh, formal leadership training or were productive faculty and, and move their way up, up the ranks. And, and you see that in other contexts too, folks that were great salespeople become sales managers. And it's like, but wait, I don't want to be a manager. I, I don't want to be with people, you know, I, I, you know, sure, uh, I think it's sure. like office space, you know, that, that guy who's like, I'm good with people, you know, what don't you understand? <laughs> you know, and so I just think about how, how ironic it is sometimes that, you know, to Lauren's point, again, like when we were dealing with these situations at, at particularly on higher ed campuses, have you ever thought about maybe talking to the folks in your leadership program or in your business management? Pro- like maybe they yeah. know a thing or two, maybe there's a framework or two that maybe- Yeah, we, there's no shortage of expertise within the walls of our institution, right? No. So- I am never asked about it, although I give my students all my advice. So my students could probably go and coach some folks. I am never asked my advice. Dan, something you said that really um, <laughs> that really struck me there was we, we we worked on an impact study. Some of my colleagues in the office that I work in, um, and we were looking at uh, some of the longitudinal impact of the programs. Because now we've been at this for uh, one of our programs, our Rutgers Leadership Academy, like seven years now, right? So we have a lot of alumni who have gone through the program, faculty and staff, to understand like what's what's clicking for you. And um, time and time again, through both the survey data and the interviews we conducted. It's this sense of community and the breaking down of silos in an increasingly complex institution that the participants in the program find to be often most meaningful. Yes, the learning about leadership. Yes, the working through case studies and simulations. But it's that sense of community in pursuing the work of leadership. So to your point there, understanding how we as leadership educators can create ecosystems and environments for leaders at our institutions to thrive. It's, it's creating those conditions. So we have such an important role to play with that. Yeah. You, you, and I feel like I may have shared this example before on this, um, uh, on the podcast, but it's probably been a few years, but, you know, to your point, one of the things that, that I still use as an, as an exemplar uh, that our provost helped us to do through navigating the pandemic. So it's summer of 2020, not only is the entire campus going to be transitioning from face-to-face to, to online, because that's what we were doing in Maine. We, we, we weren't messing around with, with, uh, with these types of things, except for like nursing and like OT, because they're like, how do I show somebody how to do a splint on Zoom, right? It's not going to work, right? And so we're transi- um, our program had been, as you mentioned before, like we had been pretty, pretty innovative, like we're, we've been pretty proactive. And so we were one of the few programs, I think one of two or three programs in the entire university that had already been using Zoom, had been doing high flex, had been doing online. And so simultaneously, we were transitioning from the Blackboard LMS to the Brightspace LMS oh. that summer, right? So all this happening at the same time, Provost decides, hey, we have some pandemic relief funds. Instead of using those for I don't know what, and many institutions had different priorities, many had deficits from housing, things like that. She said, look, we need to make sure our faculty are prepared going into the summer, fall to teach. So she created learning communities. She, That's so um, brilliant. She recruited a ton of, of our faculty. I think every single one of our faculty became community leaders. And over the course of the summer with our Center for Technology Enhanced Learning and some other folks, we had probably 150 faculty go through and and part-time adjunct, like all together, learning how to use the tools, learning how to use it. Like it built community exactly to your point. And we 
we, I, I wouldn't call it a recovery. We call um, our transition was a transformation and it was a healthy transformation. And we felt like, Hey, we're all in this together. Instead of just mm -hmm. like, I mean, I've heard horror stories and, yes. and, and, and she, she did this well, um, yeah. you know, and, and she, she's no longer it's... our promo. She's, she's somewhere else now. Um, but, um, and that was her decision. <laughs> and, um, but, but what a great, what a great way to, to, to facilitate that. Um, and I don't know if that was just, she, you know, while she was singing in the shower, it came to her mind or if she got some advice from her faculty and, and administrators and friends, but the way that that was led was, was really, was really proactive. And, um, Dan, that's such a, it's such a great example. And it ties in, I think beautifully to the theme that you all are focusing on in this season, because really when we, when we think about uh, generative leadership and, and the need for a, a need for us to be mindful of our mindset. What does it require? It requires, um, are, are we learning organizations? So what are the ways in which we're engaged in continuous learning? How are we learning across disciplines that might not be part of our own individual areas of expertise? That's why I've been really struck by our academic health folks who, you know, we have, we have surgeons and anesthesiologists and nurses who have deep subject matter expertise, but are hungry for learning about leadership hungry for learning about leadership. So learning across disciplines, and, and I'm learning just as much from them as hopefully they're learning from the experience our team's providing. And in your example, Dan, you talk about the, the, the community that's a byproduct of those pods of, of that learning. So when community arises, not, not, it's not imposed, but it actually organically sort of evolves in response to crisis, brilliant. You know, I love all of this conversation and, and Dan and I've talked about this before, like how, how does the student affairs mindset kind of trickle over into academic affairs? And, and I wrote down like, you know, the value of student affairs is one, you always center the student. That's generally a collective mindset where, wherever you are. Two, you have to work with faculty or academic partners. There's no way you can do your job in any unit in student affairs without having some faculty friends. And then three, you have to attend campus events. Um, sometimes you go for the free food. Sometimes you go because it's a great person that you might have to pay to see. That's great. Time. Absolutely. Right. But the thing I, I, I walk away from, the thing I, I think about is all of those, that student affairs mindset always steps, uh, bleeds over into my academic affairs space. And that's simply because you're leaning on those relationships you have across campus to better understand and, and better learn how you can do your job um, in those spaces. And I feel like in, in the pandemic and even now, it's still thinking about the value of those partnerships. How do you go back and talk to your colleagues in different schools about their experience and how how what did what was their view of university leadership and what did they hear? Um, in my my dissertation study, I'm interviewing faculty members from different colleges, and one of the biggest things is their understanding of who made the decision about class delivery modes or or methods, like who decided whether you're going to be synchronous online or asynchronous, like who made that decision. And there's a, a misperception of what the university leadership said versus what actually happened. And so, again, um, I think it all goes back to, like you said, your mindset in teaching. I, I'm very curious about um, whether or not, um, you know, that student affairs mindset shows up now. And I say it to you because I know because we first met when we were both in students. It's, it, it, it's fantastic. It resonates so much, Lauren. Yeah. When you think about the student affairs philosophy and and um, that that set of set set of values and, and the, the guiding principles. I love it. Cause then what does that also do? It elevates the role of student affairs. 
right? It elevates the role that we all know on this call um, has a tremendous importance for our institutions. A lot of my former colleagues are actually at your institution now. So a lot uh, of uh, I love our student affairs team here. Yeah. Yes, there's yeah. some great people. Yeah, and one thing I want to—I don't want to fail to to mention. Yeah, and, and I love what you said, Ralph, about just you know that response to you know becoming a learning organization and how like there was this like organic evolution in response to to the crisis that like community creates community, right? Like garbage in, garbage out, right? And so like we our morale did not suffer surprisingly. I think you know during that that time period. Well, it's like you know, and I think we talked about this back in 2020. You want to see how an organization's doing throw them a crisis, right? Do people talk? Do people communicate? Do they trust each other? The two, the two pillars of any effective team, right? Trust and communication, any organization, right? And so, and, and what I wanted to make sure not to fail to mention was, oh, like, and we were all stipended. Like, so that's the COVID relief money was like, mm. you want, you want, what a faculty want? Well, are you going to pay me for that? It, it's summertime. Mm. We're off contract, right? And that, this is a faculty member saying this, right? Like, do you want to get us on Zoom in a classroom? Or well, not a cl at that point, it was, everything was virtual, but like, you want us to show up, throw us, throw us a bone, right? Um, so not only were the community leaders stipended, but there were, there were funds for any faculty member full or part-time that, that participated in these trainings and workshops. And so that was great. And just a shout out, I wanted to make sure to, to, to share uh, Janine Uzi. So she's now the vice president for academic affairs at Adler University in Chicago, formerly our, our provost. So just wanted to make sure she gets a shout out formally. So thinking about all these things that, that you've shared at our heart, right? We're leadership educators, right? So we're facilitating leadership education, training, development with, with students at all at all levels. What should we be thinking about? Like, what should we review since the pandemic slowed down? Like, how is this relevant? Or what do we need to make sure is, is a, as a focus as we think about this in our spaces and places where we're facilitating leadership learning? Yeah. So the list is probably extensive. A couple <laughs> of things that come to mind. One, pause and breathe. Yeah. Right. Pause and breathe individually as a leader and as a leadership educator and for the teams with whom you work to, to sort of take stock of where where the team is, where the organization is. Lauren, you shared the example of the dynamics at Temple. Um, it's at a very different place than some other institutions right now. So the way in which you respond to it's going to have to look different given the climate of the institution at this time and the trauma that you all continue to live through. Um, so pause and breathe. And then I think second is revisit the why, revisit your set of principles as a leadership educator and revisit the purpose and mission for the unit, the department, the division, the school, the institution with whom you're working. Um, and if that's with students, what is their set of guiding principles, whether it's with a club, an organization, or a class? And then I think three is to sort of pursue principle and people-centered change. So as you think about reinvention, renewal, and I try to distinguish the two in, in the, the, the book, um, how do we how do we look ahead? How do we how do we bounce back to what once was while simultaneously looking ahead to what we have never been before? And, and I think there's a, there's a lot of creativity that comes from that. There's a lot of courage that comes from that. And ideally community can develop if we take that work seriously. I love that. I feel like we need another hour to keep talking to you. Um, I, I think, is there anything else you think we didn't ask you or maybe um, something that you think would be helpful in this conversation? You've given us a lot of like little, little, not little, but like strategies and tips, yeah. things to implement, but what else? Mm. 
Um, you know, I, I feel like when, whenever you talk about my writing, I'm so humbled by it because it's so cool when you, you guys know this, when you write stuff and people are like, oh, you, you're an expert in this area and people read it. It's still like so exciting, but I don't, I don't have all the answers, right? So I, I'm trying to read across disciplines. In fact, one of the books I just read was Deep Medicine and how AI could be used to sort of like revolutionize healthcare. Oh my gosh, right? That's thinking about digital disruption and the changes that we're going through and the impact on, on our healthcare. Um, so I think to, to read across disciplines and to really take stock of the questions that you have and the ones that are unanswered, because that's what's been a guide for me right now. And I think the podcast that you all offer um, it provides a whole set of, of insights that folks can glean. Yeah, I wish I had more clarity there, Lauren. No, no, that's plenty. I actually had a, a student affairs VP once say he tries to go to conferences outside of student affairs and higher education to think to get a better understanding of how people are thinking and what can be applied. So reading outside of kind of what you regularly read is important. Yeah. So so yeah, that's that's super helpful. Yeah. And just to blow up your head a little more, I was uh, <laughs> I was working with a, a former student. There's some uh, a mini grant program going on in our state university system, they're working with uh, micro-credentialing. And I don't know where this will end, but she now works, um, I won't say which which hospital, but a large a large hospital in Maine doing uh, training and development. And we had been uh, kind of, you know, kind of like a mentor mentee, just checking in every, every three to four months or so, uh, because she's doing kind of like a full institutional look at like the, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Kuzas and Posner earlier, Lauren. So they're doing um, the leadership challenge and trying to make kind of adopt that as their, their practice with public health. And so this, the grant program for micro-credentialing has to, has to be competency-based. And I was like, gosh, I know there's some competency books out there on, on like leadership. I, I, I remember somebody I know wrote a book on competencies. And, and so I pull up your competencies for effective leadership framework for assessment, education and research. And we're diving back through that and, and using that as, as a, and just another good one that you put out there, Ralph. And so um, Thanks, it's, it's an oldie and not that old, I'll say an oldie, but a goodie, but yeah. only, only 2019. And 2019 and informed by Brent Rubin's original writing on the framework, which is a year, years previously. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there, there are lots of models to turn to that provide a guide. In fact, there's a great organization, Dan, uh, Upsia, that's doing a lot oh, yeah. of work on, on um, alternative credentials, micro-credentials, and they, um, they just received a, a, a big grant to, to further develop that work. It, it's the, the, the landscape is changing so quickly. And then you look at WVU, and some of these institutions that have been um, caught up in, in, in the crosswinds of lots of different pressures right now. So again, this is impacting our institutions in so many different ways. And yet it requires us to really stand tall in terms of what we stand for and the kinds of institutions we want to create while looking ahead to where we can take our institutions in a changing market. You've been lucky to have Somehow, uh, if I can get, get inside your, your where your crystal ball is, Ralph, you, you've got a lot of foresight um, with, <laughs> with the stuff you're writing about. I mean, still, I mean, to be writing about crisis leadership in higher ed right around that time, kind of the inverse of what happened to, um, what is it, with Priya Parker with her book about on gathering. Oh, um, gathering, right. Yes. Like, yeah, oh, no, gathering. like, for, you know, like she's like, yeah, uh, so I, I published this book on gathering. If you listen to her audio book, you know, she's like, or, or any of her interviews, it comes out in like April of 2020. And what do we not? Not supposed to do we're not supposed to go oh art of gathering excuse me and so I'm, I'm, i've got like two chapters left i'm listening to her audiobook right now and it just just 
just cracks me up. Like, and now yeah. it's so super relevant again, of course, but, and you could certainly apply a lot of her teachings to, to gathering online and what have you, but just the irony was just striking. So in any case, well, Ralph, it's, that, it's, it's always such a joy to, to have you on. Really look excited to see you in Vancouver and in a couple of short Likewise. weeks. And uh, at the ILA. I World can't wait to see you both and can't wait to see any listeners who plan to be there as well. Um, thank you. Thank you. I can't believe how many seasons you all have been at this. So thank you for, I know it's a lot of time and effort that goes into it. So thanks to both of you as well. Oh, our, our pleasure. And we, we just so much enjoy conversing with you and wish you the best at Rutgers this semester, this academic year and uh, safe travels to Vancouver. Yes. Thank, thank you. you both. Leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or if you're an academic leader looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.